0: What's up, it's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. Go! Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.
1: Follow us on the grab
2: at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN
0: 1000,
1: Chicago's home for sports.
0: What's up and welcome in. It's Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000. Hope that you enjoyed your Wednesday. Hope that you enjoy your Wednesday nights. I keep you company until 10 o'clock right here on Chicago's Home for Sports ESPN 1000. So if you follow me on Twitter, Twitter.com, TweetJHood, you saw me retweet a web poll question that I want to talk to you about. The web poll question written by Rick Kamler says, Whose legacy has taken the biggest hit in The Last Dance? And, of course, it's the documentary that we've been watching and commenting on because it's, it's really interesting. Without sports, um, there's a lot of storylines in a lot of different directions with this Last Dance documentary. So whose legacy has taken the biggest hit in The Last Dance? And here are the choices on this web poll that I saw earlier today. Uh, Scotty Pippen, Jerry Krause, Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan. Now, there is no other choices except the four because it's Twitter, right? I mean, of course, we can keep going with this poll question, but the four that I saw was Scottie Pippen, Jerry Krause, Isaiah Thomas, and Michael Jordan. So let's start with Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf because even though it says Krause, it's really the brain trust of the Chicago Bulls. Krause and Reinsdorf were both instrumental in breaking up the Bulls. I don't know why that this is a topic anywhere else. I think that if we're watching the documentary, we know what's happening here. um, And there's no, there's no spoiler here. We're seeing in real time, every time we watch a documentary, uh, what is happening with this organization. That's why it's called the last stances documentary. So we're seeing the breaking up of the bulls. I said this in 1997 and I'm saying it now in 2020, you don't break up a dynasty You let the dynasty corrode, or you add pieces to maintain a winning culture and a winning environment. There are some teams, as we've seen in the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, hockey, other sports, where you continue, as Martin Lawrence would say, riding until the MF and wheels fall off. And you just keep riding until the wheels fall off. And if that's not the case, then what you do is if you have a championship and there's a little slippage, you just don't break the whole thing up. It's like, all these guys are no good. Let's just reset the pieces. You you can't really do that. Uh, you can. Uh, but I think that if you want to maintain a winning environment, like we've seen a perfect example of that is the San Antonio Spurs, right? San Antonio Spurs, we didn't say that the Spurs were in a dynasty. It wasn't like back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back championships. But they were always in the mix, winning the division, always with a deep playoff run, even a short playoff run. They were all at least... At least in the postseason if they're not winning championships things are starting to change now with the spurs but the point is is though is that even when you have retirements or those that want to go someplace else or free agency you just don't allow the organization to just say you know what never mind about all these successful people we'll just boom to the side so the obvious answer to the question for me, would be the organization of Kraus and and Reinsdorf. But there's more to this as we move forward here. So I always think you don't trash the organization. You just continue to keep it rolling as much as possible. The front office and the organizations alone don't win championships. The players and the coaches, they do as well. Jerry Krauss talks about organizations, but when he was talking about that in the documentary, and I've, I've seen him... Uh, and talked about this when he was alive and all the interviews that he would do and talking to the press and talking to the newspaper reporters about this. He would always talk and try to push the organization, meaning himself and Jerry Reinsdorf and the scouts and the front office workers. But to me, when you are in that position, you have to be able to include everybody yeah, Jordan gets all the praise, and Jordan deserves it. He's got his own documentary, and he won six titles in eight years. And whether you like him or not, he's the, the all-time greatest player in my lifetime as an NBA player. But it's interesting to read what many are saying now, especially millennials that did not live this, and they're seeing what's happening with Kraus and Reinsdorf. Yeah, I lived it. As I, in my 20s, I remember was, this was a daily thing where actually in the middle of the last championship run, Krauss was already plotting to try to change his team and give it to Tim Floyd and give it to Jalen Rose or Tim Thomas or whoever the hell. Uh, because I guess Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson wasn't getting it done anymore. Also on this web poll is Isaiah Thomas. So you think about the bad boy Pistons part of this documentary as well uh if you hadn't seen the 30 for 34 the Pistons you should because it's very interesting from their standpoint uh because the Pistons with Isaiah Thomas it is it was no shock watching their documentary watching what the Bulls went through they were a physical team because they want to make sure that they could shut down Michael Jordan and shut down the Bulls and and it was it's well documented that if they were able to frustrate the Bulls be physical with them, you know, files that we're seeing in this documentary and files I grew up watching in the eighties and nineties are common fouls back then. Today, it'd be a, a massive fine, suspensions, Definitely kicked out of the game. You hit somebody with an axe handle and, and knock them down to the ground into the paint. That's a common foul. <laughs> well, not even a technical foul. Just common, you know, because of the physicality of the game. That's how it was in the eighties and nine. In some of the nineties, it was is interesting to watch the dichotomy of the NBA during that time that we're talking about with this documentary and what we're seeing now in twenty twenty as we talk about this with Jonathan Hood on ESPN one thousand and the ESPN Chicago app. So it was the Jordan rules for the Pistons. It was physical, it was dirty, it was productive. Hey, the Pistons won two championships, but the Bulls finally were able to prevail. Isaiah Thomas was not popular, and that has been dissected also in the documentary that even though Isaiah Thomas deserved deserved and earned a spot on that dream team for 92, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson's like, Nah. Nope. We don't want you to be on this team. And it's too bad because if Isaiah was on the team, that every player from the dream team in 92, all hall of famers. Only problem is, is that they didn't put Isaiah Thomas on there. They put uh, Christian Leitner on there, Christian Leitner not a hall of famer. So Isaiah Thomas is on this poll question that we're talking about here. And so you, I, I look at all of these terrific players in the dream team. Isaiah should have been there for sure. Um, So Isaiah's on here. Also, Michael Jordan's on here as well. Let's put a pin in Michael just for a second. So on this poll question, Michael Jordan is only getting 6% of the vote. (laughs) Whose legacy has taken the biggest hit in the last dance? 6% of the vote going to Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan was said to be very concerned about his legacy before this documentary aired because you and I, We're able to see things that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, I've been around Bulls practices as a producer and as a part-time talent uh, in the 90s, and I was going to those practices you know, when you could at the Berto Center, and I saw what was going on there. Um, it, it was not the closed environment that you see now, but it wasn't the full access that we're seeing in the documentary where Michael Jordan is, is berating Scott Burrell, pushing Scott Burrell, pushing his teammates and you know, doing the whole eye thing and just trying to get the players on the same page. Uh, and by the way, side note, if you think that some of that Michael Jordan footage is rough or something you can't stomach, or you think it's bullying, or you think it's not right, wait until the Kobe documentary comes out. I understand there was a camera following Kobe in his last uh, year with the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. Wait until that comes out. You put you juxtapose what we're going to see with this uh, that documentary with uh, the Last Dance <laughs> should be interesting because Kobe and Michael were very similar in trying to push players. Nonetheless, they covered the legacy of Michael Jordan, and I, I think that when we see Michael in that light, sitting back with the cognac, sitting back with the cigar, laughing, doing the old man laugh, the shit, the moving the head around, watching the uh, the iPad. He's having a good time. It's, it's the most open that Jordan has been since he first came to the league. The stories I've heard from those that cover the Bulls in the early years, in the early 80s, the mid 80s, when Jordan came to the league, is that Jordan would be open enough to sit down and talk to you. This before he became this global icon. And so Jordan would talk to, um, you know, the the press and talk about what's on his mind, his future, what he thought the Bulls would look like. And it was it was interesting during that time to get perspective of like the Fred Mitchell's, the Terry Boers, um, and those that covered the Bulls during that time. That Jordan was similar to what we see right now—just open, honest, um, honest to a fault, saying what he, he thinks. But I want to take you back to the documentary just for a moment. And let us hear from Michael Jordan. Uh, uh, just a, a <laughs> just a, a little bit of a glimpse of Michael Jordan going back to that last championship, right? That run and finally taking on the um the Seattle SuperSonics. And Michael Jordan laughing at Gary Payton talking about locking him down. A lot of people bagged down the bike. I didn't. I made it a point. I said, just tire him out. Tire the f- out of him out. You just got to tire him out. And I kept hitting him and banging him and hitting him and banging him. It took a toll on Mike. It took a toll. And then (laughs) I feel myself resting him a little bit. And then the the series changed. And I wish I could have did it earlier. I don't know if the outcome would have been different. But it it, it was a difference. And beating him down a little bit. The glove. I had no problem with the glove. I had no problem with Gary Payton. I had a lot of other things on my mind. It's really interesting to hear Jordan just horse laughing at Gary Payton. It just—I mean, listen. Uh, for those of us that watch Gary Payton, we know how great he was defensively. He wasn't good; he was great defensively. And just Michael just pushing pushing him off like he's some freshman in the league, some young player. Like uh, Gary was good, a- and Gary really wanted a piece of Jordan throughout that whole that whole uh, that whole uh, finals. And you know, George Carl, the head coach, did not put Gary on Michael. And just Michael's looking on the iPad, just laughing at Gary Payton because Gary wanted a piece. And Michael's just like nah, I had no problem with the glove. He wasn't that good. I'm like what? What do you mean? Of course, but that's who Michael was. Is that he believes that he's the best in the room? And by the way, more times than not, he was the best time, best guy in the room. Very few times you saw Michael Jordan lose, and and very few times for over a five or six year stretch, he didn't lose three games in a row. That's crazy, but that's part of his legacy. So and and so it, here's something that I still, still feel steadfast about. And that is this, is that there's nobody that's perfect. There is no perfect athlete. And even if you cherish some athlete and you think that he's God's gift and you've got his posters and all his memorabilia on your walls, that person that you paid good money for to get that autograph or got that free autograph, you got it in your she shed or your man cave, keep in mind that no one is perfect. And so even with Michael Jordan, uh and he was the perfect basketball player that i watched but no human being is perfect and no sports figure should be exalted to the point where that person is just so great and he's flawless and he's, there's no of course there's flaws we all have flaws but for me my focus is always on the basketball did you win did you lose are you getting better or are you getting worse um what is your next steps? Those are the storylines I cover on a daily basis. And so watching Michael Jordan, it's just uh it, it's just funny. So whose legacy has taken the biggest hit in the last dance? Jordan only has six percent of the vote. Now uh coming up we'll talk about someone that uh, is getting some momentum here in this poll question as far as his legacy is concerned. We talk about it coming up next. Now, I want to get your phone calls in here. Tyler, uh, open the phone lines, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on whose legacy has taken the biggest hit in The Last Dance. If you watch the documentary, uh, if it's nobody, tell me it's nobody. If it's someone that you see in the documentary, you're like, wow, I see him totally different. His legacy is not what I thought. I'll I'll take your phone calls. So let's open it up. 312-332-ESPN is our phone number. One person we haven't mentioned. We mentioned Krause. We mentioned Isaiah Thomas. Michael Jordan. But there's someone else. We'll talk about him next right here on UTH.
1: You're listening to Under the Hood.
0: Get the ESPN Chicago
2: app for podcasts and the
0: live stream from
2: anywhere, anywhere. Anywhere.
0: Download in the app store
1: today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.
0: I'm reading what you guys are putting on my Facebook wall, Facebook.com, Jonathan hood, and, uh, talking about whose legacy has taken the biggest hit so far in this last dance. And I see the choices up here and I think it could be more, but of course on Twitter, it's only four. They, on this poll question I saw, it was Scotty Pippen, Jerry Krause slash Reinsdorf, Isaiah Thomas, and Michael Jordan. Um, and so I'm Joe uh, Giacomo says it's Isaiah Thomas. Um, Bobby's, uh, Vito talks about, he says, I don't think anyone, anyone's legacy has taken a hit. Honestly, I feel like we all knew everything in the last dance is just being presented in a different light. Kraus doesn't look any worse for breaking up the band than he did in 1998. Um, uh, but it's, but <laughs> here's a point that has not been made. Uh, Vito says, I, I think the only thing this doc confirmed for me is that Phil Jackson doesn't win a single championship without Tex Winter. How about that? How about that, Tyler? There's a, there's a new one for you, That's right? a take. Yeah. <laughs> it's different, right? Oh yeah. So that that gives a lot of credence to the uh coaching staff there. Um you know, and again, some people like me, I'm of a certain age that was in my 20s, in my early 20s watching the Bulls championships. Um so it's you know, it's it's interesting, but for others, like Tyler, that are watching these Bulls championships and the drama around it, it's new, it's fresh. And um so Uh, Mike says, he says, Michael Jordan, he says, as much as I love him for being such a bad guy to so many for so long, Michael Jordan's still my guy, but Kobe showed that you can be the same leader without being so much of a bad guy. Well, that's not true, Mike. (laughs) Because wait until you see the documentary on that. That's not necessarily true. Uh, Jordan, uh, what do you think uh, Kobe got his his Mamba mentality? It, It came from Jordan, so that's... I don't think that's uh, correct at all, uh, but keep weighing in. And I want to get your thoughts on the phone line as well. three one two three three two espn By the way, the other person on this poll that we haven't gotten to is Scotty Pippen. And over the last few days here on the show, I have documented some things about Scottie Pippen where, again, up front – You know, he's a Hall of Famer. You know, he's a top 50 player. He was able to grow into the position. When he first came in the league, he was, he was behind Brad Sellers off the bench. I remember that like it was yesterday. Grew into the position as he came from Central Arkansas. And in that documentary, as Charles Oakley was on the team, he's like, you know, he tried to knock Pippen down a peg or two because Pippen thought he was the cat's ass coming into the Bulls thinking he was on the same level as Michael Jordan. And, and so, I think there was an adjustment there for Scotty, and you saw how he was just a tenacious defender and was a guy that Jordan could rely on. Bottom line of all of this is, is that Michael Jordan couldn't have won a championship, not one championship without trusting one another. Remember how he was scoring 62, 63 points against the Boston Celtics um, and trying to carry teams by himself because look at the team around him. He had to learn to trust and I think there's a number of players in today's basketball that will have to understand that. And and, and by the way, another, another side note to this, I believe that millennial players or today's players in the NBA understand legacy even more so than some of the 90s players. 90s players were, were rich and famous and showing their crib and showing their women and showing how many cars they can get. It was a flashy era. That's kind of what the 90s were in a lot of different ways into the 2000s, but I, understand, I think that a lot of players that we see across the sports landscape understand legacy. They got money, they have generational wealth, but they do think about championships. And, and I can't say them all, but I think there's a lot of them that are, are legacy minded more so than money, cars, you know, change related. That, that's all part of it. They, I think everyone knows that, uh, but they are about legacy too. And when you talk to young players, that's one of the things. They they, they don't want to be in a position where they're on a good team and they never win a championship because there's something missing there. 312-332-ESPN is our phone number. The Pippen part of it, though, Pippen not wanting to come into the game 1.8 seconds, which is crazy. Kukoc gets the last shot. Pippen was not happy with that. Pippen wanted out of the team, wanted to be traded several times uh, during his time with the Bulls. We played last night in 97 where Wayne Larrabee sat down with Scottie Pippen. And Pippen in like November of 97 was like, yeah, I I can't see myself coming back to this team. I'm out of here. This is in real time while the Bulls are trying to win a sixth championship. Uh, There were some missteps there from Scottie, and I can't chalk it up and just push it aside and say, you know, guys, that was just him being immature as you know, he's a young guy. Nah, cause he was a veteran in the league and still wanted to be able to think he was disrespected. Um, and so I think from a money standpoint, he felt like he should be on the same level as Michael. And, you know, the whole story with that we don't have to go through that chapter and verse again but and eventually when his career is done after his time with houston and portland he's made hold financially he's done uh financially so you know there's a guy there that uh, i'm not sure he's happy with how he's coming across in this documentary um and, and let's go back if we can tyler to that 1.8 seconds Let, let's get the um where Pippen on, says that he regrets sitting out the 1.8 seconds because that was interesting. Uh, his really his seven seconds, he said uh, on that documentary, spoke volumes.
1: It's one of those incidents where uh, you know I wish it never happened, but if I had a chance to do it over again, I probably wouldn't change it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he still would he still would sit out
3: yeah that's the thing is you see all these guys and some people have used this documentary as their their platform to renege a lot of the things that they did way back in the day scotty is not scotty is steadfast and all right we would i would have done the same thing and this i feel like there's been a number of instances where that's been the case with him uh, on all these things that are getting brought back where they're kind of showing him in a negative light
0: I don't, think he could, I don't think he comes across well in this documentary in some ways. Other ways, obviously, growing into a player, yes, but just some of his decision-making is, is justified, and others it's not. Three one two three three two. 332 espn is our phone number. Let me go to the phone lines and talk to you. Again, this is just a poll question I found on Twitter, and I want to get your thoughts on who doesn't come across well as far as their legacy. Let me go to Tim in Morgan Park with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Hi, Tim. Hey, Jay Hood. How you doing, man? Good, man. What's cracking? Hey, man, it got to be Reinsdorf and Krause, man. Reinsdorf is a diehard. He loves his White Sox. He said he'd give up all six championships for one World Series ring. That's all you need to know. He didn't love the Bulls like he loved his White Sox, man. Got to be him. That is true about that Sox-Bulls thing, though, Tim. That is correct. Um, he, he, You've heard him say this, right? Like, as much as he loved the Bulls championships, if he could have won more with the White Sox because um, yeah. he was a baseball guy at heart, you know. Yeah, and I'm a, and I'm a White Sox season ticket holder, so trust me, I love my White Sox too, but there's no way I'm giving up six championships for another World Series. No way. Here's what's funny, Tim. You know what's funny? So, I live in South Shore, right? All right. So, so here's what's funny. If I'm not driving, I will take the I'll take the L, right? Mm -hmm. nobody's going our way everyone's going toward downtown it's the easiest train ride to take when you get on the L platform (laughs) (laughs) nobody's going toward 95th except you and me Exactly. Nobody want to deal with that uh, 95th terminal, no. Everybody else everybody else in the western suburbs and everyone else is going toward downtown and like, okay, just drop me off at 95th. I'm good. Hey, man, I work in the area, man. I work right off of Dorchester, man. Stony Island. So trust me, I know. <laughs> Tim, I appreciate your phone call. He leaves the light open at 312-332-ESPN our phone number. Yeah, Tyler, that's a, that's a thing for me, by the way, living on the south side. Like, when the game is over, it's like a million – it seems like a million – like a, thousands of people out there, like ah, oh. but everyone is trying to get toward downtown, and that's actually the side of the White Sox too. Because you think like there's going to be a ton of people going toward South Side and like Chatham, South Shore where I live, and like you know South Holland, Dalton, Calumet City, trying to get to or whatever. And it's like when I get on there, it's like three people. It's like me. Meet him from Morgan Park, and the Ushers. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. And hey, it, at it, least you have a seat. Oh, oh my God! Guaranteed. <laughs> you, guaranteed. you can sprawl out if you want to. <laughs> guaranteed. Everybody, and then like on the other side, it's like um, like thousands of people just trying to just jam into a a train, and it's like yeah. Yeah, I'm good. You know, I got my own section, pretty much. The Southsiders are are, uh, either driving or they're going toward downtown, or everyone else is. 312-332-ESPN is our phone number. Tim leaves line open as we go to Andre in Forest Park on ESPN 1000. Hey, Dre. Hey, how you doing? Good.
1: All right. I'm going to give it to what the first caller said. Uh, I believe Jerry Ryan Reindor is the biggest villain out of all this. He showed mass amount of loyalty to Krause uh, through all this. And uh, the thing that stuck in my mind when uh, Jordan was signing that contract and Krause said that he hoped he wouldn't regret it, and this uh, to that point I believe he delivered five championships when he signed that contract. So to tell someone of that magnitude that he hoped that he doesn't regret it, uh, that only shows you uh, the commitment that he chose to put in Krause that more than a uh, knowledge what Michael Jordan had did for the organization as a whole. So I'm going to say Jerry Krauss, I mean uh, Reinsdorf. And I'm also surprised that Michael hasn't uh, criticized Reinsdorf enough that he could have stopped all that that went down uh, before he
0: left. Well, here's the thing, Dre, and I brought you a phone call. Krause and Reinsdorf were tied at the hip because he – uh, because Reinsdorf believed in Krauss's ability to try to rebuild. And he bought what Krauss was selling, talking about how organizations win championships and that the players are just replaceable. You know, it was, here, here's the thing that's funny is that the question is whose legacy has taken the biggest hit? Okay, so I know that Reinsdorf is a great owner in that he presided over seven championships six with the bulls and one with the white Sox. so it doesn't happen by osmosis he has michael jordan as a great player the white Sox came out of nowhere in 2005 point is is that you give him credit for being able to be the owner of the team don't let the money that he needed to to be able to preside over the championship so i'm not ruling anybody out in the circle when it comes to the championship that's kraus that's, that's the players that's the organization it's everybody right everybody deserves the credit the players deserve the credit more so because they're out there with the blood, sweat and tears and they're getting the job done. Uh, but I find it funny that I asked the question, like whose legacy has taken the biggest hit? Well, Reinsdorf's legacy um, is, is solid, but marred with controversy. So, I mean, it, it, whatever you thought of Reinsdorf before you think less of him now. I mean, it may, maybe for some that we're not aware of this, where you had uh, Reinsdorf on a pedestal and now you see what's happening now. Like, oh, wait, they tore down the championship. This is not right. Well, I mean, hey, this is part of the story. I, as I mentioned, I was watching this and just like I could not believe that the championship era is gone. Now, here's the thing. As I mentioned before, uh, legacies go away. They go away. Um, and sometimes it's because of age. It's because the new hot team comes in. For Sometimes it's because of uh, attrition. But the thing is, is that the Bulls did not have to do this. They did it because of the arrogance of believing the organization was stronger than the players. The organization, front office part of the organization, was stronger than the players. And so... That's the history. That's why I can't wait for Sunday, because I'll be live tweeting it uh, at TweetJHood. You can follow me at TweetJHood. Um, every Sunday, I'm live tweeting it with you, uh, just giving some of the nuances and things that I'm tripping on watching this documentary with you, and it's brought to you by Coors Light. Coming up next... Want to take more of your phone calls? 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 our phone number. I'm going to tell you something about me and money that I've never told you before. That's next right here on UTH. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Glad you with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Coming up in an hour from now. Ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho. Bad boy Rick Mahorn from the Detroit Pistons days of the bad boys. He is a talk show host for Series 6M NBA Radio. He's a color analyst for the Detroit Pistons. We're going to get his thoughts about the last dance. So Rick Mahorn, in an hour from now, right here on ESPN 1000, we've got some baseball talk coming up at 8 o'clock that I think that you'll enjoy. If you're a baseball fan or an old-school baseball fan, tell them to come to their listening device. Go to the smart, smart speakers and say, let me listen to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, or just traditionally turn on AM 1000, and you'll be able to hear... Uh, So I think some interesting baseball talk at uh, eight o'clock with David Schoenfield, a good friend of the program from ESPN.com. So we're loaded in the eight o'clock hour for sure. I, I don't care what you make. I'm talking about you. Like whatever you do for a living, I don't care what you make. And I will tell you that in our business of broadcasting for the many years that I've been in broadcasting, you know how many times I've been asked, so what do you think? Golick makes a year. What do you think Greenberg makes a year? What do you think that Jim Rome makes? How much money do you think that he's made in his career? Uh, how much do you think that uh, X, X broadcaster, Y broadcaster is made? And can I tell you something? I have never cared. If you have ever asked me, I have never cared how much somebody else makes in any walk of life, including my own industry. I hate that so much, because you know why? Because I don't care, I'm indifferent to it. Uh, This is why in a lot, not all the time, but many times in my career, I have tried to avoid press boxes as much as possible, because I'm a diehard fan. That's number one, to have the press credential to be able to have access into the games. It's kind of cool to go to, to gate three and a half at the United Center to see the Hawks or the Bulls or whatever event is happening, or being able to go to UIC Flames games or going to see whatever. I mean, it's great to have the credential, but I try to avoid the press box as much as possible because of the continued rumor and innuendo uh, that is out there. It's so thick because people want to know how much of somebody else is making what's going on at that station. And then what's, what's going on there? What happened to her? What happened to him? I hate the press box <laughs> so much because of all of that. Right. And so I've never cared what someone else makes. And it's something that might be in your walk of life too. What do you, what do you think she's making? She's been here for a while. What do you think he's making? I don't care. So when it comes to millionaires versus billionaires, there's a time in my career where, I, where, yeah, I have to read what's going on as far as who's making what. But it's nothing, if you've listened to me even once, you don't hear me very often talking about this person's making this amount of money, this person not living up to their contract. Because I don't talk about, oh, that guy's making $48 million and he went over for 4 last night. What the hell is that? I, I, can't, I can't do that. That guy may, makes $100 million a year, and he was 0 for 20 from three-point range. I, I don't equate the two because all of us work hard for our money. When we're able to work, we work hard for our money, for the, as far as I can tell. But in this Major League Baseball fight, millionaires versus billionaires, this is a fight that's happening during our pandemic. And many of us are out of work or, like me, taking a haircut financially. That's why you don't hear me on Thursdays and Fridays as of late, because we're taking a, a haircut financially for a reason. And that's because of what we're going through right now with this COVID-19. And the budgets are tightening, not just in my industry, but across the board. Simply put, players can stay home for Major League Baseball. Players can stay home and not get paid or they can come to work for less money uh, not for not their pro-rated salary. I mean, their pro-rated salary is what it is. Whatever it's listed as, that's what it is. But they can come to work for less money and not for their pro-rated salary. And so the player has all of the calculated risk to play during this pandemic. Now, the question is, is it worth it? If you make the minimum, I'll give you an example. If you are making the minimum and the minimum, by the way, is pretty good in Major League Baseball. But if you're making the minimum after taxes and knowing it's going to be a half a season and knowing it won't be even your full salary, is it worth it for you to play? I understand that there's there's many that's listening to Under the Hood that don't believe in COVID-19, that this is not real. Even though every day on the right side of your screen or the bottom of your screen, if you turn on the news or you check, turn on your iPad, or on your phone, you can't avoid the amount of deaths that's happened in this country and around the world with this pandemic. Again, there's some that don't believe in it. Just like, oh, this is just a hoax, even though the, the numbers and the bodies are piling up like cornwood. It's all over the place, right? But if you are a player, doesn't matter if you are not making a lot or making somewhere in the middle, or if you're John Lester, is it worth it for you to go back and play baseball? Is it worth it for you to play? Now, from the owner standpoint, as we talk about this with Under the Hood, with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the franchise worth goes down without fans. Without us, the franchise worth goes down. We have read over the last 72-plus hours about teams that don't draw well like Miami versus teams that do draw well like the Cubs and the Dodgers. Either way, the franchise worth goes down because there's no butts in seats. There's no one that's able to be able to get merchandise. There's no merchandise sales. So these, the revenue sales are cut. There's nothing coming through there during this pandemic. If a deal does not get done, okay, if it doesn't get done, keep in mind that the money got in the way. If the players and the owners can't come together, that means that money got in the way during this pandemic. And it looks bad on both sides, both sides. It looks horrible. And it goes back to our show last Wednesday when we're reading from the Scott Boris op-ed piece from the New York Times in which Scott Boris is talking about, oh, it would it, be great for the country to be able to have baseball, to be able to have the sport back again. But as we speak right now, there's a controversy on whether or not we're going to see the owners and the players um, come together and put a deal together. But again, I'll underline the fact again, if a deal does not get done here, where we go throughout the spring and summer without baseball, that's because money got in the way on both sides. The owners, from their standpoint, I would say this, and Tyler, you tell me if this is something, because we're going to hear from Jeff Pass in just a second. The owners clearly could be able to defer the salaries for the players with interest, but apparently that's not on the table. Because I'm thinking, if you're an owner, here's what I say. I say, okay, um, you want to have your full salary, but I can't pay it now because we don't have fans. But I could defer your salary with interest over the next two or three years, and we can get you back whole again off uh, uh, from a financial standpoint. Um, players are going to ask probably for more games. The more games that they can play, the more they'd get paid. We've been hearing the 82-game thing for a while, Um and I really believe that it, that's something that could happen. But just keep in mind that during this coronavirus, um, when you want both sides to come together, you know, the players can easily say no. You know, if you're, if you're Clayton Kershaw, if you're John Lester, they can look at it and just say, you know, it's not worth it because it's just half. And, and here's the thing the difference between 20 million and eight or nine million. Okay, I mean, what's what's the major difference, especially if the owners came together and said, we're going to defer your payment or not defer your payment. You can still live off $8 million. So think about that from st- that standpoint, Tyler, that owners could pr- bring this to the table, but yet Tony Clark, or the Players Association, is saying, no, we don't want a salary cap, um, <laughs> and so... I think that both sides got to understand, like, this is a new normal for right now during this COVID-19. And
3: no no doubt with that. But also think about the minor leaguers, too. I mean, those are guys who make next to nothing. I mean, th- their wages are, in some cases, close to minimum wage. And it's tough grinding through that struggle every single day for those guys. I mean, some of them are literally living in air mattresses with three, four guys together in a, in a little apartment or something like that. So it's not a glorious life for everyone.
0: That is true. That is the, absolutely true. Let's hear from Jeff Passon, because uh, he was well one with Cap and & Company, and it, they talked about a number of things. Uh, but one thing that resonated with me in that interview earlier today was he, uh, Passon, who covers the Major League Baseball landscape for ESPN.com, still believes the deal will get done
2: it makes too much sense to get a deal done when the alternative is as dire for all parties involved as it is. Um, Do we want another 1994? Because that's what this is. This is 1994, except worse, if they don't play. They lost a World Series that year. Uh, They would lose an entire fan base if they don't play this season because of money. Now, if they don't play because of concerns about health, I get that, and I think a lot of people across the country would understand that as well but i have a difficult time seeing it coming down to that uh if they don't play because uh local governmental officials uh decided to grandstand and say that uh this is not going to happen that's a possibility and by the way what what jb pritzker said yesterday was was so catastrophically ignorant and, and 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 embarrassing honestly and and it's happened multiple times now. You know, Andrew Cuomo didn't quite go that far. Um, but but for a sitting governor in a state where uh, unions are as vital an institution as they are in, in the city of Chicago and all of the smaller towns throughout Illinois, uh, to sit there and say something like that, it just showed a complete lack of grasp of a subject that... Uh, he ought to know better about if he wants to speak on it.
1: This is Chicago's home for sports.
0: Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening
1: to Under the Hood on ESPN
0: 1000. Glad to with us here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. We will uh, hear from our friend Dave who covers Major League Baseball for ESPN.com, is baseball returning. Also have some fun with some numbers with uh, Dave Schoenfield. He's always great uh, on the nostalgia and the current stuff with baseball. We'll get to him at uh, 8 o'clock right here on ESPN 1000. Tyler Aki, are you ready, sir? Yes, sir. From ESPN.com, uh, they have NFC North over-unders. All right. Okay, so I'll start with the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, Over-under touchdowns for Dalvin Cook. They set it at 8.5. Is this just rushing? Yes, rushing touchdowns, yes.
3: Rushing touchdowns, I'm going to go over. I think over 8.5 there because, I mean, I guess the injury concerns always play a factor, especially with a guy like Cook, who he knows missed some time. But, I mean, 8.5, especially with the weapons that they add, the, the diversity that they have on offense, give me the over.
0: Oh, uh, you know what? Courtney Cronin, who was on the program yesterday, she agrees with you. She's, she agrees. She's a fellow Glenbrook South grad. And she covers the Vikings for mm-hmm. ESPN.com, mm-hmm. more importantly. Nonetheless, <laughs> yes, she, uh, this is the easy one she said. She says over 38% of the Vikings offense ran through Cook, ninth most touches from scrimmage in the NFL in 2019, while he recorded 13 rushing touchdowns, a fourth year, running back is the vocal point of the offense uh, that had the second highest designated uh, run percentage in the National Football League. So you and Courtney agree over on uh, rushing touchdowns for Dalvin Cook, over 8.5. Next one. Let me go to the Green Bay Packers. Okay. Tyler, the over-under for receiving touchdowns for Devontae Adams. They set it at 8.5. 8.5.
3: Ooh. I'm gonna go under on Devontae Adams. Just Rob because the- why is that? Because it seems like there's gonna be a bigger emphasis on the run game. So if, if you gave me an Aaron Jones, I'd probably take the over on Aaron Jones, but Devontae Adams I'm going under.
0: So Rob Domofsky was on the program on Monday who covers the Packers for NFL Nation says the Packers didn't add a receiver in the draft and signed one in Devin Funches in free agency. He essentially replaces Geronimo Allen as the third wide receiver while Adams' touchdowns dropped from 13 in 2018 to 5 last season. Uh, He had turf toe. Uh, He still averaged 10 touchdown catches per season over the past four years. He goes over 8.5 for Devontae Adams. All right. We'll see, right? Yeah. How about this one, sir. Detroit Lions. The over-under It's a big number. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. Over-under 4,199 passing yards for Matthew Stafford.
3: I'm going to say under because I don't think he'll play all 16. Because that seems to have been a problem with him these past couple of years. And I mean... Well, he lost. He's lost some targets, too, and I guess we'll we'll see. Can he get a a back? Like, is DeAndre Swift going to be a a receiving back for him as well? So I'm going to go under.
0: See, I agree with you, but Michael Rothstein, who covers the Lions, is going to be on this program in an hour from now. We'll talk to him at 9 o'clock. Rothstein says over. While Coach Matt Patricia would like to run the ball more, Stafford was on pace for a 5,000-yard season before the back injury landed him on injury reserve. The Lions have the potential for one of the more potent offenses in the league when the players are healthy, and Stafford is a big part of that in Darryl Bevel's offense. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see.
3: That health thing is still a big kind of red flag for me. One
0: more on the beloved Chicago Bears. All right. Tyler, what is the over-under for receiving yards for Allen Robinson? Jeff Dickerson sets it at 1,024. Okay, Receiving yards.
3: 1,024. I'm going to say over because we don't know if he'll have his contract yet and it could be one of those big contract years for him. So I'm going to go with the over on Allen Robinson. You said 1024, right? Yep. I think he'll go over 1,100.
0: We agree. Um, All right. The the Bears had the – and J.D. agrees. The Bears had the NFL's 29th-ranked offense last season. Uh, Yet Robinson still caught 98 passes, good for 1,147 yards. Chicago's quarterback position is bound to improve with the arrival of Nick Foles, who uh, who many believe that he will wrestle the starting job away from Mitchell Trubisky. Robinson is only 26 years of age and in the prime of his career, barring an injury. Robinson should add another 1,000-yard receiving season to his resume in 2020. So uh, all three of us agree, J.D., you and I, that Robinson should have uh, over 1,100 yards. That makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely.
3: You expect quarterback to be a big reason for that, too.
0: That, my friend, is over-unders with the uh, NFC North. Uh, You can see that on ESPN.com. Coming up next, fun with numbers when it comes to Major League Baseball. Will we have baseball back this spring or summer? We talked to David Schoenfield about that. Coming up next right here on Under the Hood.